there's really interesting lessons learned from the air war over Ukraine. I think number one is the importance of being able to gain air superiority, including through the use of suppression of enemy air defenses. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. More than a year into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the air war seems at a standoff. But recently leaked documents indicate the Ukrainian military is approaching a dire strait that coincides with the expected resumption of hostilities and its big and widely expected uh, offensive. We'll discuss that and more with air power analyst Dr. James Chow, who runs Project Air Force that is at the beating heart of the RAND Corporation think tank. And we'll have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, uh, what's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered? The biggest news of this week has been on the front page of every newspaper. It's been on news broadcasts. Everyone knows that there's been a purported leak of what appear to be classified U.S. government defense documents. Whether that's accurate, that those are actually U.S. defense documents, we can't tell you. But we can say that they get into some very sensitive subjects, some of them surprises, some of them not. For the purposes of this program, the most interesting part is its discussion of the dire state of Ukrainian air defense stockpiles and also addressing the question of whether they actually need and can use more fighter aircraft. Those documents, whether they're proven to be accurate or not, are driving a lot of the discussion and thinking, at least in Washington, on what the next steps are. What would have been the number one subject had that not come out, we talked about right at the end of last week's program because it happened just as we were about to upload that episode. And it is that the Government Accountability Office came out with its ruling on Lockheed Martin's, Sikorsky's, and Boeing's protest against the award of the future long-range assault aircraft contract to Bell and ruled in Bell's favor, making the V-280 Valor the next aircraft to be bought by the United States Army. The U.S. Air Force began its new pattern of deployment to Kadena Air Force Base following the controversial announcement that the service was withdrawing its two squadrons of F-15Cs and Ds. Those have now been replaced by F-15Es from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base on a rotational deployment. And going forward, that's what the Air Force intends to do with Kadena, supply it rotationally. The Air Force also ran an experiment using a C-17 as a command and control platform for air operations. This was billed as an experiment in support of the Agile Combat Employment concept. But if you think about it, it really reduces the vulnerability of command and control systems to attacks on fixed ground stations. Could be useful in a wide variety of scenarios. We'll ask our guest, Dr. James Chow, about this in our conversation later. Boeing's T-7 trainer is back. It's expected to begin developmental flight testing this summer. That had been on hold pending a redesign of the ejection system, but that now seems to be in order and the Red Hawk will be back in the air. 
Embraer announced that its KC-390 tanker transport aircraft had achieved full operational capability, initially with the Brazilian Air Force, this 14 years after the company launched development. That's, of course, of interest because they are partnering with L3 Harris to try and sell the KC-390 as a medium tanker to the U.S. Air Force or trying to get the camel's nose under the tent to replace the C-130. Romania has decided to join the F-35 club, although they haven't yet decided how many they want. Regardless, that adds a bit more pressure on the program to get above the current production rate of 156 per year. The orders keep piling up, but the pipeline is not getting any bigger. So yes, pressure is building. And finally, we have news of a base renaming that doesn't have to do with the Confederacy. Thule Air Base in Greenland is now Petufik Space Base. Petufik, because they are trying to honor more of the Greenland local traditions, but apparently we're calling things space bases now. But before it was Petufik Space Base and before it was Thule Air Base, that field was known as Bluey West One. You can win some bar bets at the O Club with that one. That's that's why we're here is to help you win bar bets. Uh, well done, JJ. Uh, and it's interesting. It's called Space Base, right? Not Space Force Base, uh, because I'm, you know everybody has air base. Oh, I know why. Because it's not based on the in the United States. Obviously, it would be an air base uh, and not have Space Force in it. But it would be a Space Force base if it was in the United States. Got it. The the one thing I would add is we still, uh, at least at the time of this taping, do not know whether Lockheed Martin and Boeing are going to go to court to contest the government accountability office's uh, decision on the future long-range assault aircraft. So that's going to be uh, very interesting because that could add another 60 days to the clock. And as you know, on the business podcast, we discussed that at a, a run rate, right? It costs tens of millions of dollars a month for everybody to keep their teams together. And certainly that cost is a higher cost proportionally for Bell, which is a smaller company and Textron, which is a smaller company than it is for Lockheed Martin. Uh, so if you wanted to make the wind sting a little bit, you would uh, do that. Does the Romania award surprise you at all? It surprises me a bit, be, in part because it's coming now, right? There's been a lot of opportunity for people to stick up their hands and say, yes, we do want to get on board with F-35. We've seen at least four countries do that within the last year and a half. But why Romania chose now to move is not clear, unless it is that they are sending a message to a certain gentleman in Moscow that Romania intends to remain in very strong solidarity with NATO and the West. And one of the best ways you can show that is by saying we are going to plug into the F-35 ecosystem. Who do you see as the next JSF European domino. A lot of eyes are on uh, Sweden, obviously developing uh, the latest version of the Gripen. Uh, and by all accounts, it is uh, a great airplane, but every other nation surrounding Sweden is now an F-35 user with the exception of, of course, the Baltic states and, and Russia. I think it would be really hard for Sweden to do that. Yes, they would like to have it, but at the same time, as one of the few countries in the world with an indigenous fighter design and construction capability, I think it would be very hard for the Swedish government to say to its people, no, we're going to buy somebody else's plane for our Air Force. So what about other countries in Europe? Beyond that, I can't really read the crystal ball, but we're running out of countries that haven't joined the club, at least ones that might reasonably be able to afford the aircraft. 
I think one big question out there still, believe it or not, is Turkey. There have been a number of moves that appear to be smoothing its way back toward acquiring F-35s. And really, the only remaining step appears to be their formal renunciation of using Russian air defense systems, which um, they could do easily by trans transferring them to, say, Ukraine. Um, interesting. Uh, inter interesting point indeed. I just want to make a quick quick point. You talked about the document leak uh, at the very top. And, and the only thing I'll say as somebody who covers the war on a daily basis, and I know that this is the case for you as well, uh, in terms of virtually every program we've done over the past year plus, and indeed, I mean, we covered the 2014 uh, invasion, and then we were actually on this program uh, not to sound a little boastful, but we're focused on the possibility of an invasion many months before then when some of those Zapod exercises uh, were taking place. And um, Michael Kaufman and Sam Bendett uh, of the Center for Naval Analyses and even uh, Gene Rumor of uh, Carnegie joined us and said, you know, there was there a lot of, you know, every time they do an exercise, more equipment stays, more people are forward based. And so we've been paying attention to that. I find it interesting how much breathless coverage there is about a lot of things that are almost always the case in intelligence. There is greater detail behind the curtain, but what's in front of the curtain is actually representative. For example, South Korea's reservations to uh, supply munitions directly to the Ukrainians, uh, or whether there are close allies uh, and partners that are considering selling weapons uh, or busting sanctions. I mean, you know, there's the Egypt story. Turkey is, you know, certainly a cutout for microelectronics and other capabilities, uh, making it to, you know, I mean, India, I mean, a number of other countries are, are still doing trade. Were, were there any things in particular that jumped out at you uh, in these leaks? I mean, obviously, there was a lot of particularly sensitive information. But some of it is, I mean, come on, a lot of this has been in the in the public sphere and the United States, like every nation, does take an interest in its allies and partners to better understand their decision-making processes. That spying, sometimes it's called good diplomacy and, and good national stewardship. Anyway, from your standpoint, what are the things that sort of jumped out? I think this is one of those cases where you have to remember that not everyone is in Washington. Much of the country may not have been aware of the discussions we've been having. And there are a few benighted souls out there who do not listen to the Defense and Aerospace Report. What Bago has just told you is why it's important to not only listen to the Air Power podcast on Thursdays, but to get all of the editions of the Defense and Aerospace Report, where these subjects are often discussed well before they reach the public uh, marketplace of ideas. In uh, terms JJ, of thank you very much for that plug, by the way. Really appreciate it. I but <laughs> in terms of what was in there that was a big surprise, I think the biggest uh, revelation, the things that I had not seen in public before, concerned the transparency of the Russian military and intelligence operations to the United States. The idea that we are able to tell the Ukrainians, for example, on a real-time basis, what targets are going to be hit on a given day, that really seems to go beyond what I had at least seen in the public presses before. But also, it casts a question as to where these documents came from. Is someone, for example, trying to make Vladimir Putin feel more paranoid about his relationship with his military and his intelligence operations by releasing information that says, no, you can't trust them? That is sort of classic tradecraft, but it also is not outside the bounds of possibility in this case. Right. I mean, and, and the Russians have been using this for disinformation, and, and you think the two can play at that game. 
a bit. I think either we are doing this consciously or someone, and this is a much less desirable option and the kind of thing that gets my blood boiling, decided on their own that this would be a good maneuver and took it upon themselves to release documents that they knew they shouldn't be releasing. There are few things, having held most of the clearances available in this country, that get me more angry than seeing classified documents in the public realm, knowing that somebody took an individual decision to supersede those classifications. Uh, well, it, it won't be uh, the first time. And the hard part is you don't know whether or not this is coming from somebody that wants to help the Ukrainians or somebody that wants to hurt the Ukrainians, right? Is it to make the case that, look, the situation is dire, everybody, we got to come off the benches in order to be able to help them? Or is it to, to try to undermine it or to embarrass uh, the United States? And in this thing, you don't know, you know, obviously an investigation is ongoing uh, and we'll see how it turned out. I did think also, before we uh, get to uh, Jim, uh, who is uh, standing by, you know, that C-17 experiment also is something that's particularly interesting. And I know, again, you're, you're going to be asking uh, Dr. Chow about that. Indeed. And to me, actually, the most important headline was the renaming of Thule Air Base, because my father worked there in the early 1960s and loved to tell the stories of how when the wind was blowing outside, there were lights above the doors that said 30, 30, 30 to remind you that when it is 30 below zero and the wind is blowing 30 miles an hour, human skin freezes in 30 seconds. <laughs> that, that, that is uh, just the kind of uh, lovely uh, 1950s, 1960s rules of thumb <laughs> that I absolutely love. You know, just to note, I mean, there was one time for a whole bunch of very bad reasons uh, was going to have uh, what was going to be a terrific trip and was going to spend a couple of days there. And the weather had been particularly bad and the number of times the briefers, the pre-briefers were like, and listen, you have to understand, you can't go anywhere. Do you understand? You have to get into the snowcat to go anywhere. Do you understand? You're not going to be able to walk back to how, you know, I was like, okay, okay, I got it. And it was because of, you know, we, we were going in February. It was cold. It was very windy. And so they were like, you don't understand. We could lose you 20 feet outside the building and you might miss it. Hey, a quick note if you're looking for something to do this Tuesday, April the 18th, I will be appearing at the Center for Strategic and International Studies on a panel discussing Chinese aircraft engines, where they are going and how the United States may respond to Chinese advances in that area. I'll be appearing with Dr. Cynthia R. Cook, who runs the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at CSIS, Brigadier General David Stilwell, the former Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, to talk about that subject. 1.30 p.m. if you want to be there in person, or there is a live stream. You need to register in advance at CSIS.org. Hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts here on the Defense and Aerospace Report. Cavas Ships, hosted by Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new technology report, It's Cyber, It's Chips, It's All Tech, hosted by Vago Maradian. And joining us now is RAND Corporation Vice President and Project Air Force Director, Dr. James Chow. Project Air Force is the program within the RAND Corporation think tank that functions as a private think tank for the United States Air Force. It is also one of the nation's federally funded research and development organizations looking at force employment concepts, modernization issues, and a whole gamut of ideas for improving the air and space services. 
Jim, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Dr. Chow, the Air Force is used to developing strategies from a position where it's stronger in almost every way than its likely opponent. As the Air Force and your RAND team look at the air war in Ukraine, what can we learn from a country that has less, fewer aircraft, fewer soldiers and sailors and airmen, arguably fewer resources than its opponent? Conversely, how does looking at the Russian approach to Ukraine inform how we should think about Russia and maybe even China as potential opponents? Um, there's there's really interesting lessons learned from the air war over Ukraine. I think number one is the importance of being able to gain air superiority, including through the use of suppression of enemy air defenses. And that's not an easy capability to have. I mean, I, obviously, the United States invests a lot in its people and in platforms and, and munitions to help enable that capability, but not many other countries do. And you're seeing the result of how hard that mission is to accomplish and the result of the lack of uh, an ability to suppress an enemy air defense from the Russian standpoint vis-a-vis -vis the Ukrainians. But, you know, look, wars are never static. And, you know, a year plus from the start of the, U the war in Ukraine, the air war has evolved as well. And so new pain points are coming up. But if I would highlight the overarching lesson learned so far is the importance of seed, uh, suppression of enemy air defenses. And if that cannot successfully suppress the enemy air defenses, it will be difficult to have the impact of air power, which we've all seen, you know, from recent conflicts involving the United States and, and its significant impact. But without being able to suppress the flip end of this is that the Russian Air Force has not been able to successfully have an effect on the ground war in Ukraine. Well, air power is a transformative capability. I mean, time and again, history has proven that. And where you have superiority, the land war and land campaign is completely uh, different. Uh, and time and again, we devolve into relegating air power sometimes into a secondary role for reasons other than logic. In Ukraine, the inability of either side, as, as you just noted, Jim, to assert air superiority has resulted in kind of a grinding World War I style artillery duel. UAVs are what are increasingly consisting an air component. Uh, the United States has, uh, you know, fortunately given harm, uh, anti-radiation, anti-radar missiles, uh, which have tried to tip the, the dynamic a little bit into Ukraine's uh, favor. But at the end of the day, what does the Ukraine Air Force need and how fast does it need it, including aircraft, if it's going to contribute to the upcoming offensive? Because so far we've been reluctant to give the Ukrainians the very tool that would actually strategically change uh, the balance uh, in this conflict, and, and maybe by design, but unfortunately, all you get is a longer and deadlier campaign as a result, a longer and deadlier war as a result. I think the priority from an air power perspective is to continue providing the Ukrainians the capability to keep the Russian air force off the backs of the Ukrainian army. And, to, and number one is, is that, and, and to protect the Ukrainian people and its infrastructure. I think Enabling the Ukrainian Air Force to have some capability to support the Ukrainian army and attack Russian ground forces that are engaged with the Ukrainian army, I think that can help as well. But if I were to think of the significant 
overmatch that the Russians have, just in terms of both current capability and current capacity, recognizing that's not static, but I mean, the Russians just have that significant advantage. The fact that there is no air superiority from the Russian Russian side to influence the ground war is significant. And but but that's not to say that's cast in stone. And so supporting the Ukrainian defense forces so it continues to have the capability to keep the Russian Air Force off its back. That can come in the form of airplanes, but I would say most importantly, it would come in the form of providing ammunition to replenish its air defense expenditures. I just want to ask one uh, follow-up. Uh, would, right, I mean, we have a tendency of looking at aircraft and, uh, you know, whether it's F-16s or any other capability going to the Ukrainians as crossing some sort of Russian red line. I mean, we've crossed one line after another, whether it's long-range strike on space, real-time intelligence, uh, and, and now we're sending uh, tanks, and indeed some, air, some uh, folks are even sending combat aircraft, right, increasing the end strength of the Ukraine Air Force by some 25 airplanes, back up to about 85 still down from 120, but not as bad as 60, which is where they were a couple of weeks ago. Should we regard that as crossing a line? I mean, why why not give combat aircraft to the Ukrainians at this point? The red line is certainly the eye of the beholder. It's a different capability, right? I mean, aircraft, whether it's a Gripen or an F-16, those are multi-role capable aircraft, I mean, systems. They can be used for offensive purposes. They can be used for defensive purposes. I'd highlight that the Ukrainians have fourth gen aircraft already. Now they don't have many of them, but they've had them throughout the war and maintained them and have been pretty much using them for defensive air purposes. And that's what they really need. I mean, that need is screaming loud and clear. So yes, airplanes would be somewhat more provocative. I mean, again, they have they have a capability to go, you know, maybe 500 miles away and, and drop offensive munitions to that distance. But the Ukrainians already have systems capable of delivering munitions from that distance from its airplane. So really what's screaming out here is the additional layer this would provide from a air defense standpoint. Well, a recent leak or disinformation campaign or whatever one wants to call it of what purport to be U.S. classified documents, if we believe they're accurate, show Ukraine in a pretty dire situation as regards its air defense missile inventories and, of course, has been known for a long time, its fighter force. You mentioned that Russia had largely ceased offensive operations, really, I guess, except lofting missiles from long distances. Is one of those Ukrainian shortages more important to repair than the other to keep them from restarting? Will the Russians stay back if they're only facing fighters and less air defense or the other way around? I would just say they're both important, but I would say the foundational capability that's kept the Russian Air Force off the Ukrainians' ground forces' backs has been the maintenance of its ground-based air defenses. So The Ukrainian ground-based air defenses going into the war were based on older but significant numbers of former Soviet Union air defenses, mostly mostly these so-called double-digit SAMs, which, while older, they were well-designed. They were highly capable. Long ranges, mobile, potential to be operated in a mobile fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, the Ukrainians, I have no idea what their current stocks are, haven't, haven't seen and can't look at any sort of 
documents that have been shared recently or have, have or have not been shared. And so I can't really speak to that, but obviously those stocks of missiles from their original inventory, it's hard to be able to, there's not many countries that had those kinds of systems in their inventory beyond Russia and a small number of other countries. And those other small numbers of other countries had limited numbers. So it's hard to replenish that capability. But that is primarily the force that has kept the Russian Air Force off the Ukrainian army's back. And so if there are low numbers of those kinds of air defenses, clearly, you know, something needs to fill the, the potential void. And so, you know, the Department of State maintains a, a fact sheet on U.S. security cooperation with Ukraine, and it highlights all of the equipment and, and systems that the U.S., and other countries have offered to support Ukraine with, including air defense capabilities. And so, so it's, it's, a, it's an impressive list, but it's not all in country yet. And so those kinds of capabilities and thinking about how to replenish, because the, the Russians, as you highlighted earlier, they are, they are using up those stocks through their strategic attacks against Ukrainian infrastructure. And so protecting the Ukrainian people and its infrastructure is, is an important um, role for these defenses as well. So that, that can't be ignored. So again, replenishing those um, ground-based air, air defenses has so far been the foundational capability. So that needs to be, if I were to highlight a priority, but, but look, I mean, aircraft, you know, helping with those, that air defense, it has played a role to date and it can play a role in the future too. I mean, it, as an additional layer. Jim, let me ask you a question about innovation, right? Time and again, we've seen the Ukrainians prove very innovative. For example, their ability to strike deep in, in Russian territory, uh, both in defense and how uh, they are employing some of the capabilities they're getting and the indigenous capabilities that they're developing, you know, so much so that the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, Dr. Bill LaPlante, has said, hey, we really need to study how the Ukrainians sort of adopt and embrace innovation. From your standpoint, what are some of the things that the Ukrainians have done in air warfare that you find particularly interesting and sort of demonstrate or kind of can unlock creativity uh, across the alliance in, in watching somebody do it in real time and under fire? Ukrainians have been very innovative in putting sensor to shooter to practice. So closing hill chains, whether it's the use of information gathered from a variety of sources. It could be these, I mean, they use these very small quadcopters. You know, it's a form of ground-based air power, right? I mean, it's launched from army troops and then flown and to gain intelligence. And then that's used to help close a kill chain, a pretty rapid kill chain. And you'd see that actual innovation on both sides, but that's really important. And to be able to strike fleeting targets um, whether it's Russian fleeting targets or on the flip side, you know, the Ukrainian fleeting targets um, will require closing those kill chains more rapidly. And so you see both sides doing that. That's an important lesson for us. We cannot expect any opponent that we face that their targets are just going to be sitting around. You know, everybody's motivated by survival. And so those kinds of kill chains will need to be closed even more rapidly in the future. And, and you know, any, any kind of 
capabilities that the Russians have or the Ukrainians have or the, even the Koreans. I mean, they're, they're all going to be sort of innovating this way and trying to survive in this way. So I, I think you see the Ukrainians doing this. I think we can certainly learn a lesson from that. Opening the aperture a little bit and going back for a moment to our discussion about uh, air defenses, we've heard a lot lately about the concept of air denial as a way of shaping uh, a battlefield. We obviously can't ask you if the Air Force has been specifically interested in that, but is the air war in Ukraine providing us with a new concept of how air wars might be fought in the future? I mean, I, I'm not sure it's new, but it's highlighting it's highlighting ideas that have been discussed in the past. And, and so, I mean, whether it's NATO or allies in the Pacific, they all have their own indigenous capabilities. And, and if they're ground-based air defenses, as an example, the importance of mobility. And so both having capabilities that are more survival, I just highlighted trying to survive and putting stress on the other side's responsive kill chains. Mobility is one way to do that. And having mobility, emphasizing that with our allies, emphasizing that with our own procurements, and then training to that, I think is an example of a set of capabilities, both equipped materiel and, and, uh, and how we train, that is being highlighted in Ukraine and is applicable all across. Uh, Jim, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned that obviously this is going to take uh, many more turns. The Ukrainians uh, are planning uh, an offensive, obviously, you know, in their calculus uh, will go uh, the disclosures, right? I mean, at the end of the day, they, they still have to uh, execute what they have to execute, uh, even if an unfortunate amount of information has been uh, disclosed. Ultimately, how does this end in your mind, just looking at it as a just a military strategist, uh, right? Because the Russians tried this in 2014, they're doing it again. Uh, they're a little bit like the Terminator, you know. Like Putin is, you know, has made this a, a major issue. You know, is this something that he just comes back around on it every couple of years, right? What's what's your sense on on how this ends and and what the next stages of it are? I think it's highly dependent on how we support or don't support. And increasingly, they're military capabilities are based on what we're providing them. I mean, whether it's ammunition or heavy military systems, whether that's tanks or artillery or shells, increasingly that's the force that they have is what we are providing them. And so clearly, I mean, I, I, as a defense analyst, the outcome of the war will depend on how, how well the Ukrainians are supplied how well they're able to integrate and train and maintain those systems. I mean, training is critical. And I'll just highlight, again, if I were to look at that fact sheet of U.S. security co cooperation that the Department of State puts out, it is stunning, and not just the United States, but all of the allies or all of the other nations that have been put forward um, systems that they are given promises of providing. It's a it's a long list of capabilities and systems. All would need to be replenished if actually delivered and used by the Ukrainians. All would need to be trained with, and um, not just the people that are using the systems on the front lines, but you know, in, in the in the supply chains, in the back lines. Um, they need to be integrated. 
I'll go back to the air defense side of this equation. You know, it's, it's called an IAD, which stands for Integrated Air Defense System. And that's not an easy thing to do to integrate when you have this long list, impressive list, and kudos to countries who've, you know, volunteered, but it's not an easy thing to integrate. And so, you know, going back to your original question, it, it depends, obviously. And so, yeah, if, if these capabilities aren't continued to be provided, then I think that's certainly a different outcome than if we continue to support and expand upon the support. And so I think it's hard to plan without that knowledge, I would say. Let's move beyond Ukraine just a bit. Earlier in the program, before you joined us, we discussed uh, among the headlines the recent Air Force experiment that used a C-17 as an airborne command and control platform. This was notionally in support of helping develop the concept of agile combat employment, but it really looks like it could be useful in a variety of scenarios. Is the Air Force leaning forward on reducing the number of fixed installations it has in order to add some redundancy to what look like pretty easy targets? Yeah, it's it's not an easy problem to increase the resilience of its air power capabilities, including its air bases across the globe. And so it's not easy to then come up with concepts of operation that distribute further and then how to command and control that distribution. And so, yeah, the Air Force has been uh, leaning forward to try to learn and, and empower its airmen to um, accelerate that learning, but not an easy problem. And it's not a static problem. And it's not the only direction, you know, the Air Force is and, and needs to continue to look at other ways to increase its ability to generate air power. And, and so that's not just passive defenses. It's not just airbase dispersal. It's um, active defenses. It's, it's offensive capabilities. Um, it's joint operations. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not an easy thing to do to distribute, and it will require increased understanding of how to do the command and control and, and how to train for that. And so, yeah, the Air Force is moving out on there, but there's more work to be done for sure. Let me uh, have a uh, just follow up uh, with an agile combat employment question. Uh, this is a concept the Air Force has been working on. It's increasingly been exercising it and discussing it as uh, you know something key in the future. The question that some folks ask, however, is you know in an uh, era of increasingly ubiquitous surveillance and ability to target whatever it is you can see, and then have hypersonic missiles and, and weapons with area denial properties that can very quickly hit things. The question is exactly how useful a tactic this is. Yeah, I know you guys have been doing some work and thinking on this as the Air Force works and thinks about this. How do you respond to people who say, well, wait a minute, you know, how, how useful is that? I mean, it, how reasonable is it we can move a fighter wing, for example, out of harm's way in 10 minutes, five minutes, even 20 minutes, even an hour, right? I mean, we had a 24 hour yeah. fighter wing movement requirement during the Cold War, boy, and that was a big lift for whatever the active wings were, right? I mean, I know we did that once with like, or a couple of times with the first fighter wing out of Langley, and that was a big evolution. How do we need to think about the future we're going into and how useful things like, you know, agile combat employment really are without being disrespectful to anybody, 
just sort of marrying it up and matching it up against the realities of how the threat is evolving. Yeah, I think we need to look at it from a systems perspective. I mean, like I said, it's one arrow in the quiver of being able to better generate air power while under attack. And it's not, we can't rely only on it. And, And it may diminish over time as well, but it may remain a useful arrow in the overall quiver, depending on what other capabilities we we generate in the future. And so, yeah, I mean, I this this does tie back to kind of again. I mean, everybody is trying to generate these responsive kill chains, and you highlighted one piece of a responsive kill chain potentially is is hypersonic weapons. It's it's having ubiquitous surveillance, or I mean, those are end states that people talk about. I mean, and it's and you know, there's the command and control part of it. I mean, there's like how you send information from these sensors that are, and, and so it's not easy to actually put together these, these kill chains. And so it's a systems problem. And ACE is one concept that can't be thought of alone, but I think it's an important piece. It's an important piece to continue learning about and deciding on how to best employ as part of the overall system for generating resilient air power. And presumably, right, I mean, this is something which Navy friends of mine tell me uh, often is that there are, you know, that they also have a very long kill chain. And so there are ways for us to interrupt that kill chain. And so hence movement and all of these other things come as you're saying, right, you're, you know, they're taking a systems wide approach. If we take a systems-wise approach to disrupting those kill chains and asserting our own through our own hypersonic weapons and long-range strike, that's where you you get into that mix where this becomes actually a, a kind of a critical enabling capability. Then, right? yeah, I, th- I think if you think about it from a systems perspective, yeah, I think I think it's it's one piece in a potential overall uh, system where we could have an advantage or not. Finally, to help people understand where exactly Project Air Force fits, I worked on Project Air Force, dare I say it, almost 40 years ago. And at the time, it was the principal source the Air Force had for thinking through advanced concepts. Most of the work came from assignments from the A-5. Since then, the Air Force has developed some internal capabilities, the Strategic Studies Group in the Secretary's Office looking at broad trends, AFWIC, the Air Force Warfighting Integration Capability, which is now Air Force Futures, more on the operational concept side. How does Project Air Force fit into today's Air Force concepts development process? Yeah, we interact with all of those stakeholders that you highlight. Um, working directly with those organizations or providing inputs from analytic efforts that we've conducted for whether it's PACAF or USAFE or other parts of the Air Force that are relevant to ACE or relevant to resilient sortie generation or relevant to any part of the system that I highlighted. And, And we are conducting analysis on it and we maintain core competencies in a lot of these areas that, um, you know, how much does how, how much does one of these systems cost as an example? So having a core competency, just as an example, on cost estimation of hypersonics or of a communication systems or a satellite system. Those are examples of core competencies that we continue to maintain and employ our people on, on these really important problems. And then working with those Air Force stakeholders that are 
you know, highlighting them as whether it's part of the secretary's operational imperatives or directly related to the national defense strategy, we're connecting with, with all of them. And so, yeah, we're, we are the department of the air forces, uh, sole studies and analysis, federally funded research and development center, FFRDC. Jim, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Keep up uh, the great work uh, that you and your RAND team uh, are uh, doing. Really appreciate it. And already looking forward to the big uh, end of the year conference you host uh, each year, the West Coast Aerospace Forum, uh, which you guys do in partnership with, uh, obviously, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, as well as uh, the Mitchell Institute uh, and other august uh, bodies on both coasts. Yeah, you're welcome. And uh, great talking to you, Vago and JJ. Thanks for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week.